Last weekend, we jumped into a brand new series looking at the life of this guy named Jonah, who's recorded about in the Old Testament. He actually wrote his own story and experiences with God in a book that is called by his full name, Jonah. And I would encourage you to pick up a Bible in the seat back in front of you or turn there in your device. Uh, go ahead and find the book of Jonah. And if you weren't here last week or just for all of us, let's recap just a little bit. God spoke to Jonah and told him to go to a city called Nineveh and to warn them that because of their wickedness, God was going to destroy them. When Jonah heard this message from the Lord, he ran, or should I say sailed, the opposite direction. And a large storm came upon the sea because Jonah had boarded a boat and was trying to go uh, to somewhere else. The sailors on this boat were so freaked out that they picked up Jonah and they threw him into the sea to calm the sea and God performed a miracle. The sea calmed and a big fish swallowed Jonah. Now Jonah inside the belly of the well, he spent three days and three nights there. He had a come to Jesus experience and he repented before God. The fish had a Maalox moment and all of a sudden his belly started to rumble and he spit Jonah up on dry ground. That's where we pick up the story. It's in Jonah chapter two, verse 10. It says this, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. As a recovering youth pastor, I was really tempted to fill about 10 minutes this morning with as many puke stories as I could remember. I mean, as a youth pastor, one of the favorite things to do was to make some food or drink concoctions so nasty that a kid would dare to drink it and then what went down would come up very quickly. But I'll spare you that this morning. But I do wanna share a story of something that happened right here at Crossroads when one of our interns wanted to just speak of this turnaround that Jonah had in his life. He didn't follow instructions and go get beef stew at the local grocery. And so when the morning came for him to preach on Jonah being vomited up from the fish, he ran to the church kitchen and he found some leftover jars of salsa and he thought that would do. So right before he went out to preach about this moment in Jonah's life, he poured the salsa all over his body and walked out to give the kids a, an awesome lesson. What he didn't realize is the acidity in the salsa from the tomatoes started to burn his skin. And very quickly, he ended up with splotches all over his body from head to toe. I mean, the lengths that some people will go to to make God's word come alive, that's, that's inspiring. But today, the focus point is not the vomit, okay? The, the, the key of this morning is the turnaround that we see in the life of Jonah. So look at chapter three, verses one through three. It says this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it to it, the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and he went to Nineveh. Aren't you grateful for second chances? I mean, the debate is still going on if it's a great college basketball recruiting strategy, but if you and I spiritually were subjected to a one and done mentality, we would all be hopeless. By paralleling the exact phrase from Jonah chapter one with the Lord speaking to Jonah, Jonah writes those exact words to indicate he was given a second chance. He had a new beginning. And though Jonah did everything he could to run away from God's first call, after repenting in the belly of the well, God called him again. And this time, 
Jonah went. This shows the amazing love of God toward wayward people and sets a beautiful stage about what's happening next. When Jonah finally did go to Nineveh and preach the message of God that he gave him, the people repented immediately. This is what Jonah says in chapter three, verse four through 10. If you wanna look at it in your scriptures, let's turn there. Jonah three, verse four begins by saying, when Jonah went three day, or took three days to walk around the city, he began by going a day's journey into the city and proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued to Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and he did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. The original word used to describe the destruction that God was planning for Nineveh is the same word that, he was, that was used to describe what he did to two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 18 and 19 recap God's condemnation to these two cities because their wickedness had come before God and he said, I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth. And he did just that. The difference is in how the people of Nineveh responded different than the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. The actual word repentance doesn't find itself anywhere in the, the book of Jonah because repentance is not really a word. It's actually something that we do. And the people of Nineveh turned from their evil ways. It says that they believed God because repentance starts with believing that God exists and believing his, his word is true and it is the way to live. If repentance is anything, it's not business as usual. And the people of Nineveh demonstrated their turn of heart by first of all putting on sackcloth to show that they were sorrowful for their sins. And then they prayed and they fasted, begging God to relent and not destroy them. An eight word sermon from Jonah brought about revival. And God honored Nineveh's repentance, even though their past sin was enough to bring on judgment and condemnation. You know, the state would never forgive a cold-blooded murderer if they promised never ever to do it again. But God chose his mercy by relenting from judgment against the people of Nineveh when they repented. I want you to notice the irony that exists in this moment. Jonah, the response of the Ninevites and the response of God compared to him. Jonah chapter four, verses one through three. But Jonah, th this seemed very wrong to him and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, 
for it's better for me to die than to live. Jonah listened to God's word, but he missed God's heart. He was full of pity, but he was not full of compassion. I'd like to revisit a question I posed to us last week, unpack it just a little bit more. Why didn't Jonah go to Nineveh the first time? As we looked last week, we come to understand that the Ninevites were terrible people. They were cruel people. When they captured a group of people that they had conquered in battle, they would treat them very cruel. In fact, this week I learned that they often cut off their hands and their feet as a sign of punishment. There was a fear of being a failure that was in Jonah's mind. Being the mouthpiece for the word of the Lord is a dangerous calling. Prophets were mocked, rejected, persecuted, even killed by people. Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18 kind of gives a job description for what the life of a prophet is all about. Listen to Moses' words in Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 and following. Moses says, this is the word of the Lord. God says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything that I've not commanded, or a prophet that speaks in the name of other gods is to be put to death. You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken from the Lord? Well, if what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that message the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously, so don't be alarmed. Jonah knew his marching orders, and he knew that the people of Nineveh were so wicked that the chances of them repenting were very small. And so it was committing vocational suicide for Jonah, a prophet, to roll into Nineveh to proclaim repentance and the people not turn from their wicked ways. Jonah is one of the only Old Testament prophets who was sent entirely to a group of people on foreign soil away from Israel. He and Nahum, another minor prophet, were two of three prophets that were sent specifically to the Gentiles. Jonah's message was not very seeker friendly. Jonah knew that the Ninevites were evil people and he feared failure in fulfilling his job. But the most telling reason that Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh was that he hated the Ninevites. Jonah was hoping that they would get what destroyed. In fact, Jonah's sermon may have read better like this, 40 days and you will get what's coming to you. His biggest fear was that God would relent, that the people of Nineveh would be spared from destruction. And when God chose to spare them, Jonah pouted. He started sucking his thumb like a baby. He said he just wanted to die. You know, all parents know that hearing is different than listening. Check out this meme that kind of puts some parents' emotions into words. It says, if I tell you I'll do something, that means I'll do it. You don't have to keep reminding me every six months, right? Maybe you've experienced that with your children. Though he was a prophet, and even the son of a prophet, Jonah knew God's heart, but he didn't align his heart with it. Which begs me to ask all of us a question this morning. What is your Nineveh? Are you bothered by the lost or are you burdened for the lost? 
Does fear or even worse, hatred keep you and I from saying yes to God's mission to be a conduit of his love and grace to a people who need his forgiveness? When we hear God's voice, do we follow his heart? In my study this past week, I learned that modern day Nineveh is Iraq. And most scholars would parallel the cruelty of the people of Nineveh with a group of people we know a lot about in our day called ISIS. So let me pose the question to you this way. If God asked you and I to take the message of repentance to Iraq, to members of ISIS themselves living there, would you head to the Evansville Regional Airport and buy the cheapest ticket you could to Alaska and go the opposite direction? Do you think that members of ISIS deserve God's forgiveness and grace? Would you be willing to take the message of God's grace and forgiveness to them? Have you ever had to offer grace and forgiveness to someone you thought wasn't deserving? It was October 2nd, 2006, when a guy named Charles Roberts, fully armed, walked into a one-room schoolroom in Pennsylvania in an Amish community. He looked all the boys in the classroom that day and asked them to leave the room. He lined all the female students against the back wall, facing the back wall. In a very few short minutes, he opened up a spray of bullets that dropped five of those young girls to their death, quickly followed by putting a bullet in his own head. Fueled by anger because his own daughter had been murdered just a few short years before that, he wreaked havoc on a small, very innocent pure community. As a father of two daughters, I don't know that I could have absorbed such pain and agony in my life in losing two people who I desperately love. But I was more shocked by the response of this Amish community toward the person who had victimized their family and their community. Within a few hours after this massacre, a grandfather, one of the daughters who died that day, stood before his fellow Amish community members and said, we can't let anger define us. And they made their way to the home of Charles Roberts' wife and embraced her. And even just a few hours after their children's death, expressed to her their forgiveness. One member of the Amish community found Charles Roberts' dad and embraced him and held him and comforted him. In the impending days after this situation, this lady who's now left without her husband, the sole provider of their family, fell upon drastic financial hardship. And the Amish community were the first group of people to start a bank account in her name to fund her needs and the needs of her children. Marie, writing about this experience, says these words. Your love for our family has helped to provide the healing we so desperately need. Gifts you have given have touched our hearts in a way no words can describe. Your compassion has reached beyond our family, beyond our community, it's changing the world. Preston Sprinkle in his book, Kara, says this, Marie is onto something. Performing random act of kindness does not change the world. Doing nice things for nice people doesn't change the world. Returning a wallet to the one who left it in a restaurant, well, that's a kind gesture, but it doesn't change the world. Jesus wants us to change the world. Only unconditional, stubborn love toward your enemy produces a ripple effect that's strong enough to change the world. Jonah, 
was so scared that the awful people of Nineveh who deserved death and punishment in his eyes would get reprieve. The irony is that Jonah in the same moment is receiving God's grace. He's been forgiven. He's been allowed to repent and yet Jonah is withholding the same from a group of people that God loves as well. Who is it hard for you to imagine will be in heaven with you? Is it someone who's done evil, cruel, perverted things to children? Maybe your child? Is it someone who's willingly hurt or killed someone that you love? Is it someone who broke your trust, who stabbed you in the back, who's betrayed you? An ex-spouse, an ex-boss, an ex-business partner. Is it someone who has different political views than you? Someone who voted for Trump or someone who didn't? Is it someone who has different views on homosexuality, abortion, race, or for crying out loud, the prices of, of eggs in China? Are those people that you've started to draw lines in your heart and says, I don't think that they deserve God's grace. God may never call you and I to go to Iraq and minister to the people of ISIS, but there are certainly people around all of us that we're just not big fans of. That we think that some type of judgment instead of grace would, would teach them a lesson. Even those that we've wrongly stereotyped or falsely accused or suspect of evil. I think we would all say that we believe everyone needs Jesus, but do we really believe that everyone deserves grace? Are we willing to go when God calls us to extend his grace and love to people that we just don't like? Do we let fear or hatred keep us from having a heart like God and loving like he does? This weekend, I want you to get a picture of what this looks like in our day to day. I want you to see a person who's had to wrestle with some of the things that Jonah had to wrestle with and has chose to respond in a way that I think makes God happy. And so I want to spend a little bit of time with her and let you hear her story firsthand. Would you welcome to the stage Deidre Everett? Well, Deidre has spent um, over the past of 15 years serving in a community that's heavily populated with Muslims. And Deidre, I'm going to ask you just to start with, when you first felt God prompting you to go to this community, what were your emotions? What were you feeling in that moment? Yeah, thanks, Phil. Uh, really, I didn't feel anything. I was going as a chaperone for the high school choir that my daughter was part of. But that changed pretty quickly uh, the last day that we were there when our leader challenged us. Uh, she said, we really need to be more intentional in reaching the adults. And I walked out of that meeting and I was like, I'm here as a chaperone. Uh, God, if you want me to meet a Muslim woman, you better put her in my path. And he did. Uh, so we were at this park and this lady just, she walked directly to me, introduced herself. Um, her name means faith. She had been in the United States for about three months, uh, originally from Iraq, and uh, it was good. And then she asked me, she goes, hey, will you walk down the street to my house with me? And that's when the fear came in. I did not want to go. I was very much afraid. Um, but with some prompting from the other leader, um, I did. I walked down the street with her, and we got to her home, um, and I was just, I was fearful. And uh, she goes, will you wait here just a moment? And she went inside, and that fear it just kept growing and growing and growing. I knew something was gonna happen. Uh, at that point, I really thought it was gonna be her, or her husband that came out and, and just harmed me. 
but that's not what happened. She came out with a box of chocolates to take back to our team as a thank you for being so kind to the community. And she came back to the park later that evening, heard the, the kids sing, we exchanged some information, and she looked at me and she's like, Deidre, God put you in this park for me. So that was my first uh, experience in that community. It's powerful. I know that you've been back many times over the past 15 years. Give us one or two moments that kind of continue the story from that first encounter with this woman. Sure. Uh, so we had exchanged information. I e emailed her a couple of times, didn't hear anything back. Um, but through God, uh, we did reconnect uh, here and there randomly. I found out that she had been pregnant uh, when I originally met her. Uh, and, and over the, the next, you know, Several years, we saw each other two or three times. Uh, the last time was about three years ago when uh, her, her daughter, uh, Dawn, uh, was 11. Mm. Wow. And I know recently you uh, visited this community again. And uh, tell us what that uh, experience was like. Yeah, so last month, uh, our team, uh, we actually had been up there, stopped at Burlington Coat Factory to uh, pick up a baby shower gift for a Muslim lady that was there. And uh, I was waiting for the rest of the team near the exit, and I kind of glanced over my shoulder. I was like, oh, that lady looks for faith. And she's like, Deidre? And uh, we kind of laughed, and she's like, God put us here together. And I'm like, right? Uh, so uh, we decided to go ahead and get together later uh, before I left, and we had dinner. And it was uh, Faith and her daughter, Dawn, who's now 14. And um, what started out as just a very general, casual chat um, very quickly turned into deep uh, Jesus conversation. And um, some of it was from Faith, uh, who's still Muslim, um, but most of it was from Dawn. Uh, she told me that her mom wanted her to believe, uh, come to her own c conclusion on what to believe. And uh, so she had tons of questions, and she would say things like, well, the Quran says such and such. What's the Bible say about that? Or... Um, uh, we believe, well, my mom believes, what do you believe? And um, so we talked from everything about how God came to earth as Jesus, his death on the cross and the resurrection. And every time I would say his name, um, she would just have these tears just well up in her eyes. Um, and so at one point I said, I said, Dawn, if I were to get you a Bible, she was like, I'd read it. And um, luckily, I was able to make that happen. And um, since I've been home, she's been reading in the book of John. And we've been exchanging emails of her questions that she's had. And so, um, you know, Phil, I think about my hesitancy to, uh, to, to even engage a, a Muslim woman um, and what God had planned um, from that point. Um, and I'm just incredibly humbled by that. As you look past this 15 years, can you put your finger on anything that has really helped your heart change from those moments of fear and, and suspect to these feelings of just close friendship and desire and even intimacy? Anything that's helped change your heart? The only way I can explain it is that it's the love of Jesus, mm. um, that he has been so good to me. Um, and I think about things like it's, it's by his grace that I was born in America to a Christian family. And what if I was born in Iraq or Yemen or Syria? I mean, who's going to tell me about that love? 
Um, and he's got such love for these people um, that I, I believe that he just really has poured that into me so that I can, I can love them like he loves me. And um, yeah, so it, it's just Jesus. That's powerful. Well, on behalf of our church, first of all, thanks for saying yes. Thanks for going. Thanks for working through those feelings. Uh, thanks for being there where God's placed you just to be a conduit of his love and grace. Would you thank Deidre for me? You know, the bottom line this week is this, if that we believe that God is a God of love and grace and mercy, a God of second chances, then we must commit ourselves to be a, an extension of his grace, his love, his mercy to everyone, regardless of skin color or ethnicity or culture, political views, or the wrong that they have maybe done to us. Philip Nation says this, we must adopt the compassion of God to join the mission of God. Jonah let his hatred for the Ninevites breed bitterness and resentment of God's grace. Jordan Fowler says this, Nineveh stirred up deep emotions for Jonah because Nineveh was the home of the neighborhood bully. And he says this, Nineveh is anywhere you think is beyond the bounds of God's grace. It's where you think that God is wasting his and your time in trying to bring reconciliation to them. It's where you think that God's wrath is deserved instead of his grace. We see a picture of God's heart in the life of Jesus when he goes to the home of Simon the Pharisee. He meets in Simon's home and as soon as he sits down at the table, another person comes to the door. It's a woman the Bible describes as a sinful woman. And she makes her way directly to where Jesus is sitting and she opens up a jar of alabaster, an alabaster jar and pours perfume on Jesus' feet. She begins weeping and she's washing and wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. And Simon sees this and is disgusted. And he says to himself, if Jesus was a prophet, then he would know what kind of woman this is and he wouldn't have anything to do with her. Jesus, being all-knowing, knew what Simon was thinking to himself. And so he said, Simon, let me tell you a story. There's two people and they owe the king money. One, a great deal of money. One, just a little bit of money. And neither of them were able to pay. And so the king forgives both of their debts. And he says, Simon, who do you think is more grateful? And Simon's a pretty sharp guy. And he says, well, obviously the, the person who's forgiven the most and Jesus responds with an exclamation point by saying, you're right. Those who've been forgiven much love much. And I think this morning that that love has, has two aspects. When you and I come to grips with just how wretched people we are, that we're the people that God says, go to Nineveh and we go to Tarshish. He says, don't do this and we end up doing it. That we disobey, that we're sinful, wicked people. When we realize that and realize that God has forgiven us, the only response we have is to love a God who would look past our sins and give us a second chance. We love God because of what he has done in our life and what he's done for us by saving us, by giving Jesus as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. But it doesn't stop there. It can't. When we've received that kind of love from our Heavenly Father, we have to respond in the same love to those who question if they could be forgiven. 
That love can't stop just to ourselves, and we can't just be selfish with it. We have to be a conduit of God's love and grace. God's word and his heart speak the same thing. John 3, 16, we know it very well. It says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We see John 3, 16 posted everywhere, but you don't see verse 17 posted very much. And I think it speaks to us today, a message from the life of Jonah. It says, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And that's why God sent Jonah to Nineveh to save them. And that's why God is sending us to a world who needs to know that God's love and grace is deep and wide. We've experienced it, and now we must share it with everyone. Roy Riggles will not be remembered for being an all-star standout football player in college. He won't be remembered for being a star for the Chicago Bears. What he'll be remembered for is a game he played in on New Year's Day in 1929. It was the Rose Bowl, and it featured Georgia Tech versus Regal's team, the University of California. In the middle of the first half, Roy was fortunate to scoop up a fumble, and he took off running, thinking he was headed toward his end zone, but he had become confused that he was actually running toward the opposing team's end zone. And if he crossed the goal line, he would score for the other team. A really bright teammate of Roy Riggles chased Roy down and tackled him, his own player, on the one-yard line, preventing the score for the other team. And because now it was fourth and really long, the University of California had to punt, and the punt was blocked and recovered in the end zone by Georgia Tech, scoring two points. And that was actually the final margin of victory in the game that day. But all that activity happened in the first half. And so at halftime, both teams went to their locker rooms and Roy Riggles went into the University of California locker room, hit the floor and burst into tears. He began weeping like a baby in the fetal position. He cried the entire halftime period. No one said a word in the locker room, not even the coach, until they were notified it was time to go back to the field to start the second half. And the coach made one statement. He said, boys, the same men who started the game today are going to start the second half. The team stood up and headed toward the field, except Roy Riggles. He was still crying over in the corner unconsolably. So the coach remained there and he said, hey, Roy, did you hear what I said? The same men who started the game today are going to start the second half. I need you to get out there. And through tears, Roy looked up at his coach and said, coach, I can't go back out there. I've made a fool of myself. Coach, I've made a fool of our team. I've made a fool of you as my coach. There's no way I could ever show my face again. And the coach just said one very powerful line to Roy that day. He said, Roy, get back up and go out there. The game's only half over. Aren't you glad in our life that God is a God of second chances? I mean, undoubtedly, obeying God the first time, when we hear his voice, when we're convicted of sin, then responding to him in obedience is certainly plan A. But be assured that if we don't obey God's word the first time, we're not banished forever for being used by God. He's a God of second chances. He's gracious. He wants to see us grow and moving in step with him and his spirit to bring him honor, to become more faithful, to be a blessing to people who are 
far and near away. He can't, we can't wait until our attitude is right before we respond with that first step of obedience. Just like we can't wait till our emotions are fully formed before we choose to forgive someone. In an act of the will, empowered by the spirit of Jesus, we must live out the steps that God calls us to. Listening and obeying God's word means letting God's word shape how we view the world, not how we view the world shape how we approach God's word. F.B. Meyer says these words. God is not waiting to notice our first failure and then thrust us from his service. He waits with an eager desire to give us joy and honor by being fellow laborers with himself. He wants to be gracious. When in our madness we refuse to do his bidding and we rush off in the opposite direction, he brings us back amid bitter experiences and he says, go to Nineveh with the message I gave you originally. How many times will he do this? I dare not say, F.B. says. His forgiveness is indefinitely, unto 77 times. But how often he will entrust us a second time with the sacred message and mission, it's not for me to say. There is a limit beyond which he cannot go, lest our own character suffer and his interest of other souls who may be dissuaded by our disobedience. As an example, they, they should be in peril. How wonderful it is that God should employ us at all. He so longs over Nineveh that he entrusts his message to carry his word to sinful people. Jonah didn't deserve God's mercy. Nineveh didn't either, nor do you or me. And so I want anyone here today who might be questioning whether God's grace is deep enough or wide enough to forgive somebody like you, somebody who's done what you've done, somebody who's gone where you've gone. I don't want there to be a shadow of a doubt this morning that God loves you, that he has a plan for your life. And he wanted so much to forgive you that he was willing to give up his one and only son so that he could shower you with grace and love and forgiveness and give you a second chance. And I also want any of us who've experienced God's grace and might question the same thing, is God's grace big enough? Are they deserving enough to receive God's grace? I want us both to see from the life of Jonah just how deep and wide and long is the grace of God. When we realize how much God has forgiven us, we must be motivated to extend God's grace, his deep and wide love to others. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for the life of Jonah. God, thank you for the message that there are second chances available. God, that there's nothing that we can do that's outside of your reach. There's nowhere we can go that's too far for you. That you forgive us, God, and those of us who have claimed you as our Lord and Savior, God. We know what it's like to be rescued. We know what it's like to be found. We know what it's like to be forgiven. And God, my prayers, anybody that's listening this morning, whether here or in, on the West Campus or online, God, that they would hear the message that you love them, that you forgive them, and that there's a second half to play. They could get up and get in the game and feel your power at work in their life. God, I also pray that you would convict those of us who have felt this love and forgiveness to not be selfish and to keep it to ourselves. And God, I pray that we would respond, respond with a heart like Jesus, a heart that reflects your heart 
and be a distributor of your grace and love in tangible ways, even to those, God, that we hate or that we fear or that we think are undeserving. God, would you soften the heart of those who are lost? And God, would you soften our hearts for those who are lost? And I pray that through the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.